Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Summer Christie. Summer is a sports psychologist with the Canadian wheelchair rugby team. She also works with a number of other sports and we're very happy to have her on the program. So welcome to the podcast, Summer. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Can you start us off a little bit by telling us about your background and how you got into being a sports psychologist? Absolutely. A quick caveat before I continue is um, (laughs) across the world, sports psychologist and the term and the title for the role is different. So I imagine potentially in Australia, there's a sports psychologist. Here in Canada, we have, and in, in the U.S. as well, we have what's called a mental performance consultant. So I'm a certified mental performance consultant. And the term psychologist is owned by people who are clinically trained in psychology. So mm-hmm. I do sports psychology. However, my title is mental performance consultant. And we uh, we have to be very clear about that when we do it. But I do sports psychology. My PhD is in sports psychology. However, the title is mental performance consultant. Ah, okay. Quick caveat, it's different everywhere <laughs> you go. Yep, I understand. Yeah. So that that helps uh, me jump into my background and how I got to be where I am. Yeah. I... I I actually was a rugby player in my younger years. I played rugby for Canada. I was at two World Cups, several test events. I played nine for Canada for for quite a few years. And Mm. um, well, love the sport. It's my favorite. It's my passion. Able-bodied rugby. (laughs) And (laughs) I did an undergrad in athletic therapy. I wanted to work with athletes on the pitch or on the court. However, playing for Canada at the time or probably women's sport anywhere, this is not very well funded. So mm-hmm. I had to pay for and support myself through my journey as a, as a national team athlete. And when I finished, I went in because I couldn't really work with teams when I was on a team. I just took on um, a job teaching and, and in sales and then all of a sudden decided to quit and go back to do school in what I was really passionate about, which was sports psychology. Um, mm-hmm. I had read a book in my undergrad and had been a captain on most teams in my life and uh, just decided to look it up, went back to do my master's in sports psychology, and then went to do a, a PhD after that. Mm-hmm. Um, within that time, I've uh, I've had a great mentor, supervisor, Dr. Penny Werthner, who was my supervisor for my PhD, who introduced me to quite a few teams and I've been able to work in high performance sport in Canada for both able body and para athletes for over 12 years now. And um, one of my bigger teams, which we'll we'll talk about, I'm sure, is Wheelchair Rugby Canada. And uh, I've been with them for at least six years now um, as a mental performance consultant. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess... The first thing that I think a lot of people will probably want to know is what does a mental performance consultant actually do and what, and what is sports psychology? I think there's a lot of, eh, you know, sometimes people can think, well, I haven't got anything wrong with my head. Why do I need to talk to someone? So maybe give us an outline of the types of work that you do. 
That's a great question. And I love explaining it for just that reason, because <laughs> often if you don't know, that's that's where you go is, uh, you know, am I going to lie on the couch and talk to you or it's not at all that. And, and it fits well with our title as well. We look at taking healthy, performing, high performance athletes or athletes in general. And we say, well, and we look to enhance the mental game. I just mm -hmm. described this the other just before with a client and said, well, you train at a high level, your, your skill, you train it all the time, you have coaches, but do you train your focus? Do you train your ability to manage stress in the moment? Do you train your ability to hmm. prepare and to perform on demand, or manage distractions? So it's really just an additional tool to add to your performance. We certainly deal with setbacks. That is not, it is definitely part of what we do, but I like to look at it more mm -hmm. as like, here's an extra tool to help you perform. And you said, what exactly? So we work with, as I mentioned before, we would work with athletes on how to focus, like, so how to stay focused on the right things at the right time in competition. As we all know, we can get distracted, whether it's things in the environment, like fans or crowds or, situations, but more often the things in our heads like doubts, fears, mm. worries. So we look at how how you can train that focus, how you can get better at it, how you can manage the challenging thoughts. We also mm -hmm. look at uh, stress management. So how do you calm your body physiologically when you know you're going to be nervous in competition? It's uh, unrealistic to think that we wouldn't be nervous. So it's how do we acknowledge that? embrace it and kind of manage the body. How do you bring your energy up if it's not high enough? We also look at things like goal setting. We use imagery would be another skill. So a lot of different skills you would use to, to work with enhancing performance and managing that, that mental skill in competition. Uh, there's a lot of other things we do when we work with teams, particularly as we work a lot with team dynamic culture interactions or anything so it's not just a it's not always just a one-on-one -on -one and here's what you do to stay focused it's also how do we work together how do we communicate with each other so that we can get the most out of each other instead of let's say fighting or disagreeing so and we can support coaches as well as everybody else in the environment yeah so can can you give us some examples of perhaps how you may have worked with a coach or you know, in terms of how how you interact with the coach and perhaps has a coach ever kind of come up to you and said, look, you know, can you help me with the team dynamics or just some issues that we're having with the way the athletes are getting along with each other? For sure. It's, it's not always like top of mind where they say, hey, we really need to work on this. It's a lot of the times mm -hmm. I become integrated with a team and you observe and you observe and you kind of just see where the challenges might be when they're under pressure. Um, mm. And a lot of the times too, when the, the typical is, well, I, they're, they're physically fit, they're ready to go, they eat the right thing, but they're still not performing on that day. So that becomes a conversation. And I observe the team, I observe the coach, we talk, we have questions. I really just try and be curious about what's going on for them, what's going on with the team to see where we can make a few tweaks. And very often it's just creating an environment that's safe to, to challenge, safe to make mistakes and safe to challenge. 
which a lot of especially higher performing teams, there's not a lot of security in making mistakes because we want to do well. Mm -hmm. We all do. But if you can get a team on board and a coach on board to really embrace that, you Mm -hmm. can, you can really shift that culture to feel safe to do that and to improve. So instead of being afraid to make mistakes or, or train really hard, but avoid doing things because they're afraid of it to just going for it and trusting each other. And, you know, really, really being a team and, and going for it. Yeah. And do, have you found that sometimes, you know, I think, I think most people realize that in order to make a change, sometimes you have to make it, you have to make a mistake. You have to, because you don't change unless you learn from something that you've done previously. And do you find sometimes that you've got a team or a, an athlete who has done the same thing is afraid to kind of move out of that boundary, but they're just not keeping up with the performances around them? Absolutely. You you nailed it with that question. I'd say a lot in the higher performance environment, we, we do get afraid to make mistakes because we don't want to let our teammates down. We don't want to, well, one, we're trying to make a team and we're trying to win important games and we know that a mistake has an impact. And how you take that is that exactly how you said is I can take it as, oh, no, I made a mistake. I better not make that again. Don't do it again. Don't do it again. Don't do it again. Then all Mm. you're doing is thinking about the mistake and you're likely (laughs) going to do it again. So so you can take it that way. Or if you're really able to, to break it open, whether it's individually or as a team and say, hey, we can learn from this and grow from this. But worrying about making it is only going to make us hesitate or make more mistakes. And the the communication dynamic becomes really important in that because in a couple ways. So one, I make a mistake and my teammate yells at me for making a mistake. That's certainly not going to help me play better, right? Mm, The other side of that is I make a mistake and I'm mad at myself and I get and I my body language changes, Mm. right? I look down or I look like mad. So it's good in a way, but it's also selfish in a way because your teammates see you hunched over looking bad. They're like, well, that she's not focused anymore. How do mm. I trust her? You know? So it's about really embracing and making a mistake. And you said it, the first part you said is that we learn from making mistakes. And that's mm-hmm. 100% true. If we did everything perfectly, we wouldn't really improve. Uh, your brain yeah. changes, you know, it's just like muscle breakdown, you know, it grows once you went after you break it after you make mistakes. So if we can do them, embrace them and trust the like trust going through them, mm-hmm. um, then we can really grow plus it builds your resilience in future games because you know that if I make a mistake, it's no big deal. We're back on track. Here we go. Instead yeah. of worrying about it and hesitating more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I I guess I've noticed, you know, it seems as though some athletes get a roadblock because they have a fear of failing and and so yeah. they're worried about not or they're so focused on the performance outcome yeah. that they miss out on some of the key things in terms of the process and that automatically means that they're probably not going to get the outcome that they're looking for perhaps that outcome may have been a bit unrealistic so how do you kind of go about working with athletes and and with teams in terms of what the expectation is another really good question and one that 
that hits so many athletes and teams. I like to explain it um, when I think of it's when I think about focus and focusing on the right things. I like to explain it like if you're to visualize a dartboard and the very center is your best focus. So in order to do as well as you possibly can, we won't talk about controllables or uncontrollables and outcomes, but to have your best ever performance, your focus is likely very simple. So you're Mm. likely thinking about what you need to do. So focus is paying attention to the right things at the right time. So right narrow when you're performing, I'm thinking about what to do next. I'm thinking about strategy. I'm thinking about my teammates. I'm not thinking about winning. I mean, you can use that as motivation, but you're not worried about not winning, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine that, that's kind of like the outer ring. So the further you get away from that task where there's only a, a few things on your mind, it's going to make it more challenging. So we look at, so let's say the worrying about the outcome is is out there on, and then a ring beyond that would be the consequences of those outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So I might be worrying about winning because I want to win, but Maybe that means it's uh, whether or not we get funding, or maybe that means whether or not we go further into the tournament. Mm. So we're getting further and further away from that good focus. And the point is, is the only difference, the only thing that changes is our thoughts. Like none of those distractions are actually real. It's just how we think about it. So for me, I like to say, well, these thoughts are normal because you care. You want to do well. You you care about this. So yes, you care about the outcomes. So don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Just say, I'm worried because I care. And then come back to the center. Say that's important, but what's important now, right? What's important Mm -hmm. now is, you know, my next step, my next push, my next play, whatever it might be. And you might have to do that a bunch of times if it's really stressful, but it's just coming back to that, that place of best focus. And if you can get a team doing that together, like if I see my teammates start to worry about the outcome or try too hard, I say, hey, no, what's important now? Okay, next play. Then yep. then, then you're in it together. Yeah. Okay. So you actually use the other athletes in, in the team, the other players in the team to kind of help. Like I guess everyone yep. needs to be on the same page in terms of what is the process or, or what are we all looking for and and it's nice in a team sport if you've got everyone working together towards that and people can prompt each other what about if it's an individual athlete who who do you use often for an individual athlete in terms of how you know often there can be key words that just get them back into the right focus Absolutely. You're right. And in it, it's for sure in a team, you have a little more help if you need it. When somebody recognizes you're out of your zone or out of the moment, they can help pull you in. But as an individual athlete, you need to do it a lot more for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the process is the same. It's what, you know, what's important now? What do I want to pay attention to and when? And if I catch myself thinking about things that aren't in that optimal zone, like, what will people think? What if I make a mistake? Or what if I don't win? Then again, you can, like you said, you can use a keyword, an action, an anchor, something that just says, what's important now? How do I come back? Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of different kind of keys or, or actions that you can use, but ultimately it's really up the athlete to figure out what works for them. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, a runner might say, you know, okay, 
one step at a time or explode or anything that's kind of just going to bring you back to that moment and let you let go of the other thoughts that are getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so do you find that there's much difference working with para-athletes compared to able-bodied athletes in terms of the way you either deliver the information or the types of challenges that they're facing? On the one hand, I'm going to say absolutely no difference. They're high performance mm -hmm. athletes. There's no difference in mindset. So they're as determined or more determined, able to focus, same managing of stress here and there, goals, etc. So I would say I do not treat them any differently. I think mm -hmm. they are exactly the same, if not better in so many ways. The, the one place I do see a little bit of a discrepancy is the types of distractions they can have are a bit different. Mm. So, uh, for example, like managing bowel and bladder is not something an able-bodied athlete has to really think about it, but it can be a very big distraction if you're going into a, a game or traveling and you're really not sure how that works. It can cause a lot of anxiety and or mm. stress. So the routines... The, the types of distractions you might have, like traveling, delays with, you know, especially with our team that travels with about 14 wheelchairs, it's never going to move yeah. that perfectly slow. Um, <laughs> so, so, and, you know, like things like the different things that can come up with like not being able to sweat or dysreflexia and, and challenges like that. But um, like I said, I don't treat them any differently, ex except for there's, you know, some distractions that can be a little bit different. But uh, yeah. I guess every human has different distractions. So it's not that yeah. different. Yeah. What about in terms of interactions with the sports nutrition side of things? Do you find that there's areas where there's a lot of commonality into, or there's a lot of interaction between, say, the sports nutritionist or the sports dietitian and the work that you're doing with an athlete? Yeah, I think, um, well, having a, a, an I, or an integrated support team that really works well together is so critical because you just learn so much more about the athlete. I may not be talking to the nutritionist every day, but, but if anything comes up, so on the one hand, you've got if there's any potential flags for eating disorders or challenges with body images, I, it's, it's great when you can connect and be able to refer right away to the nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Because for, for me, and I don't work with eating disorders, that would be somebody who specialized in it. But for me, somebody who has those concerns, that is a distraction to performance. And the athlete will gain a lot of confidence in working with a nutritionist saying like, I know what I need to perform. Mm -hmm. And that gives them a huge amount of confidence. And it gives me confidence because they're getting the right information, right? Yeah. And they're saying this is, this, these are the nutrients or this is what you need to perform. And that's why you might want to do more or less or different. So I think that builds the confidence. We work a lot with our nutritionists to, like I said, in combination with our physiologists and our medical and everything, but so that they can have a good routine. We prepare a lot for travel, what that might look mm -hmm. like. So kind of like what I said before, there's a, there could be a lot of distractions related to nutrition, whether it's in general body image or challenge performing. And then there's also what do I eat when I'm traveling? Does that cause me anxiety? What about the food before a game? Does that cause me anxiety? What happens? Mm. So 
really just have, having them be able to have solid information that that says this is what I need at this time and this is how I'm going to feel that's huge for performance because it just gives them more confidence going into the yeah. games and and sometimes as a sports dietitian you find that an athlete may not be ready or willing to take on some advice that you're trying to get them to do to help improve their nutrition and there seems to be a roadblock of of some sort so from a sports dietitian's angle that's also an important time to maybe speak to the sport psychologist or the mental performance consultant in terms of well is there something that you can see or that you know of that may be maybe causing that roadblock that maybe is is becoming a challenge to them actually being able to undertake that that shift and that change in their nutrition absolutely the more we know on either end the better because yeah i can help support that because mm-hmm. you know if they have hesitations um we can talk them out we can explore them we can break them down and usually figure out well Maybe it's not what's given. Maybe it's something else that's my roadblock. So we can we can break those down. And there will always be some challenges that potentially, especially with eating disorders, are going to require a little bit more support, specialized mm. support, I would say. Um, yeah. But at least you can get to that point when you do work together. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, you just, you build, they build the confidence in a team around them that is there to support them. So we're kind of all together on that. Yeah. Yeah. And what about pain management in terms of, you know, para-athletes in a number of para-athletes in different impairment types will have some degree of pain, whether that's um, neuropathic pain, whether that's phantom limb pain, for example, with amputees, whether there's often sort of chronic pain is that's just an underlying thing. Is that something that you've found to be something that comes up on a regular basis with some of your para-athletes that's a little bit different to what you see in able-bodied athletes? Perhaps. I'd say probably the uh, medical might see that side a little bit more. I mm-hmm. find that the athletes I work with probably have the most, <laughs> they have the most, probably the most pain, but they're least likely to complain about it or find it to be a distraction <laughs> because they live with it yeah. every day. So right. they're not, you. that to me, I haven't seen that as a, as a reason why they're, they can't focus or can't perform or anything. So probably a lot on, like I said, the medical side, but I, I do think, I work with the most resilient people in this mm. area and that that's very, very rarely, if it is, a distraction to performance. Awesome. So, Summer, what recommendations would you give to athletes who haven't really taken on board a mental performance consultant or sports psychologist or is just new to sport and, and really doesn't know what options are available to them? Yeah. Well, one, I'd say just, just try it, you know, like there's, it's, it's not because you have problems. It's not because you're weak. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. It's really a working relationship to see where we can enhance your performance. So, Mm. you know, usually a first session is get to know you, get to understand and say, well, what are you good at? Where can we improve? And it's like, great, here's, here's how we can work together. 
So, and you know what, if you, if you don't like it, great, but don't be afraid of trying it because of maybe what our assumptions might be. And to just ask questions, like to not be shy, to be open, but I don't, I don't know how to say this, but I guess just look at, look at it from a positive side. Can it hurt? Mm-hmm. Probably not. There's nothing to be afraid of. And even if you're afraid, just try it out. See if, if you don't like it, you don't have to pursue it. But I think you will. It's uh, It can help you in life too. I mean, all the skills we talk about, focus, managing stress, goal yeah. setting, imagery, like this is helping you in your job and, you know, can help you on a first date if you like. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can cross over lots of different areas of life, can't it? <laughs> exactly. And it's really tailored to you and, and what you need. So it's uh, don't be afraid. Look at it as an opportunity and I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, uh, I think sometimes that emotional regulation, you know, that if you if you tend to be someone who can get angry with yourself or angry with the world or just can't it have trouble regulating your your emotions yeah. in the moment you know that's another area that I think the mental performance consultant can help with absolutely absolutely yeah. whether your challenges come at work or if they come on the court <laughs> it's the yeah. same challenge it's the same tools it's the same way to approach it for sure yeah what about recommendations to coaches? Have you found that some coaches have embraced the work that you do, you know, they're ready for it, but some other coaches mm-hmm. perhaps are more resistant and, and you know, take a, a lot longer to kind of really understand the work that you're doing and how it can be beneficial to them? Yeah, I've had the full range. Um, I've definitely had the full range and I'd say the most productive uh, relationships I have is when they're interested and curious and open to ask questions and and to create it together. I mean, Mm. I can only have so much impact if I'm working one-on-one with each athlete, but the impact you can have if you have a collaborative approach with a coach is just so much more important because if I say one thing and then it's not reinforced the other on the other side it's mm. it makes a disconnect that's hard and and yeah I've been in environments where coaches really don't support it and I care a lot about the athletes so I stay there and I and I and I support them but I kind of see my role as almost damage control at that point because I'm just helping mm. them cope in an environment that isn't that healthy so if you want a high performance team like working together with your coach is so so important and I mean, what I talk about individually with athletes is something I keep confidential from coaches, but how we work and how we motivate and how we create that team and, and stuff is really a collaborative process. Yeah. And so when you first started with Wheelchair Rugby, had they had a mental performance consultant before or was that something that was new to them? No, they had had somebody before for quite a few years. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I was lucky to, to jump in. I was well, my, my PhD was in neurofeedback and biofeedback. And uh, the high performance director at the time was interested in bringing that to the team. So, um, so yeah, they have had experience before. And so explain what that is. Sure. So it's kind of the quantitative side of uh, sports psychology in a way, because what we do is we we measure and feedback 
physiological information. So mm-hmm. I would hook up an athlete to a heart rate monitor, a strain gauge to measure respiration rate. I would measure skin conductance, so how sweaty your palms get, peripheral body temperature, how cold your fingertips get, and muscle tension in areas where athletes can typically carry that tension, as well as brain waves. So what we do is we take that information. So it's similar to like a bit of a lie detector test. If you look at one, like it's, it's taking information from your body and it's showing it to you on a screen. So Mm -hmm. with that information, you can learn to control it or manage it. So just like a heart rate, like that's the simplest example I can give is if you put your hands and you feel your heart rate, you know, that's feedback. So you're, you're Mm -hmm. feeling something. And then if you think about, okay, it's going fast, I'm going to try and slow it down. And then you breathe and you try and slow it down. That's, that's a feedback loop, right? Right. So you're learning to manage those. So we can do that with respiration, all of those things, muscle tension. And with brainwave activity, it's, it's a little more complex, but we look at, well, how do you manage and stay focused? I can go into more details on that if you want, but it's mm. a little bit more complicated. Yeah. And so were you able to integrate that? Like, did, I guess the, like, there's a few questions that come to mind right now. Did yeah. you find that you had to change the placement of electrodes or change anything for the wheelchair rugby players? Because perhaps those some of those signals aren't like, sweaty palms I'm thinking with a quadriplegic (laughs) athlete is is perhaps something that you can't really use as a measure a consistent measure so did you have to change some of those things yeah absolutely um and yeah so some of them won't really work so the skin conductance on the hand won't really work sometimes there's just like your palm sweaty palm is very very sweaty palm and sweaty peat is is very reactive in sympathetic stress response so Mm -hmm. you might see a little or a very a little bit of a change in that number but so one I'll use a better electrode so the some are just like electrodes that you sort of velcro around your your fingertips if you have fingertips of course and Mm -hmm. another one is a gel (laughs) electrode that you can put on their their hand so so either we don't use it or two, you look at for very, very minimal shifts, which you can see, but you might just not use it mm. for breathing too. That's very different because as you know, with quadriplegics, they're going to have different lung capacity and how they're mm. doing that. So you just kind of take that. It's you, you're not, I'm not comparing to a baseline. I'm comparing them to their own baseline. So I'm not comparing yeah. to any other population. So we look at, for, okay, another example is so for breathing, we know from the research that breathing about six breaths per minute at an inhale of four and exhale of six, like four to six ratio, is yep. what will kick in your parasympathetic nervous system and help you relax. So that right. might be very different for a quadriplegic with a different mm-hmm. lung, like lung capacity. So I just look at what gives them the highest heart rate variability and we work towards that so we figure out what is the best breathing rate for them um so it's just a bit of adapting but you know muscle tension will work breathing rate will work heart rate will work depending where you put it and skin conductance you nailed it is probably the one that works the least uh (laughs) with the population we have 
Um, mm. But the brainwave activity is, is it works. So um, if anything, it just teaches you a little bit of what's in your, what's going on in your body. And one to notice if you're, if you're not controlling it and you think you are, it helps you realize that. And two, yeah. it just gives you a little confidence knowing you have the tools to be able to control it. Mm. And so what other tools do you sometimes use with your athletes? Have you ever looked into their sleep patterns using some degree of sleep monitor or is that something that you usually do in conjunction with, say, the physiologist? That's definitely something we would do in conjunction with the physiologist, with the team and depending what the goals are. It's definitely on our future <laughs> research project list for, for this team because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know as well as anybody working in sport how much sleep impacts performance. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a future project that we're going to look into. Mm-hmm. I certainly work a lot in helping people fall asleep, however, um, yep. just relaxation, managing your thoughts, you know, when you got a million things going on in your head at night, how do you actually focus and fall asleep? Yep. Awesome. Cool. And what recommendations would you have for other mental performance consultants or sports psychologists who perhaps haven't worked with para-athletes and are, are you know, getting opportunities in, in that area? Are there any specific recommendations you'd have for them? Well, just like any sport or any environment, it's just to just to approach the environment curious to learn. Um, you definitely don't want to go in and say things or direct things before you really learn. One of the things I learned early on is language and things that might be inspiring to well, the word inspiring, <laughs> particularly, mm-hmm. is inspiring for able-bodied athletes, but that word has a different feel and different understanding in, in a pair of population. So mm-hmm. to just go in and listen and learn before you start teaching, I think is probably the most important thing that I would recommend. And just be mindful of language and metaphors and things that you use. And just, uh, like I said, you can do that by listening and learning from each one of those athletes, like get involved, help them, you know, tape up before a game, ask them how the game feels, you know, just be around them and and get to know the environment before you, you really just jump in and start teaching. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Wow. Yeah. Lots of great things there. Summer, I really appreciate you giving us some time and, and sharing some of your experience with us. I think the scope of it a lot of practitioners, you know, whether it's a sports dietitian or a, a mental performance consultant, I, I think athletes who are new to that high-performance environment, and this happens a lot with para-athletes who come in from very little background in sport, they just don't really, they haven't had that scope of understanding of what some of these practitioners can do. And I think it's really important to kind of share the types of work that you do so that athletes and parents and coaches have a better understanding of how they can use that tool to to improve performance. Absolutely. Well, I I can't thank you enough. It's been really interesting to 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 have the chat and to listen to your podcasts as well. So yeah. I think well, it's awesome you, you and I'm really happy to be here. No, oh, well you don't get away without the final question though. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, the final question being, what's your favorite food? Oh, shoot. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> my favorite food. 
probably Montreal bagels. I'm from Montreal in Canada and we have special bagels. They're sesame and they're made um, at a special place called St. Peter Bagel where um, they would be my favorite food. Yeah. And what do you like to put on your bagel? Are you a sweet gal or a savory gal? Um, <laughs> I either do just butter or just cream cheese. So uh-huh. one of the two. <laughs> okay, more of a savory. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you so much again for your time, Summer. I really appreciate it. I know you had a busy week last week with a, a training camp, so it's time for a bit of R&R for yourself. But uh, thank you so much, and we look forward to seeing more of your great work with Team Canada in the future. Thanks again so much. I really appreciate it. I think it's really important to remember that the body is very pliable and that includes not just physically in terms of how it responds to training but also from a mental perspective as well as a nutrition perspective. We can actually train our gut to tolerate different foods and our taste buds, um, for example. Summer does a great job at explaining some of the roles that a mental performance consultant can help an athlete with that training component of the mental side and the brain side of things. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and please share it as widely as you can. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Jamie Stanley, who is a performance and recovery optimization specialist or sports physiologist for the Australian paracycling team.